Welcome to the TARDIS Tapes. Uh, hey Drake, what's seven divided by two? Three and a half. Are you sure? Is it, is it not three? So it is if you round. But three, three and a half. I'll shoot. Okay. Listeners, we have a confession to make. Uh, we originally recorded episodes where we were talking about the Daleks, the next serial, which is seven episodes, you will note. And <laughs> we talked about three episodes in the first time we recorded. And we talked about three episodes the second time we recorded. And we just skipped the middle one somehow. We just I don't know how done. we did that. Yeah. Uh, so we couldn't really... We decided we are just going to re-record it. Um, it was... Quite a while ago, we actually recorded that. I think it was October. I remember talking about the content of the fourth episode. I have vivid memory of talking about it. So I think we recorded it, and the recording is lost somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I had to go back. I went back through the whole first one, and I edited the whole thing to get it ready to publish. Which, by the way, this is going to be coming out late. Sorry, everyone. Um, <laughs> but uh, then I was like, wait, we stopped at the end with episode three, and then the next one starts with episode five. What happened? Uh, but here we are, the Daleks. You know, we're glad to be back. We rewatched it a few months later. Uh, first time around, maybe someday you'll hear those episodes as like a Patreon bonus or something. Um, <laughs> first time around, we actually were not that hot on this serial, but how did you feel about it this time, Drake? Um, probably a little softer of an opinion so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk specifically about which episodes I thought were stronger and weaker as we get to them, but sure. Um, I I I remember the issues that I have with the serial really starting in the second half. So I I don't mm -hmm. even think I'm qualified at this point to say that I think I like it better because I probably don't. I will say coming back to this serial, there are things that I'm really appreciating about it, and it doesn't really erase the stuff that was weird about it. But mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about the specific things as we get to them. Yeah, I was um, definitely really into three of the four episodes that we watched, so we watched the first four. Uh, yeah. And I think we probably don't care for the same one. <laughs> that might be true, although I actually think, you know, I I think last time I felt okay about episode four, although obviously didn't remember it well enough to talk about it uh, on either of the podcasts, but episode two I remember being the one that I really didn't like, and I don't think I'm nearly as down on it this time. I think episode I still... four is actually the one that I think is like, I don't... I don't think anything's happening. No wonder we didn't talk about this. <laughs> I'm still down on episode two. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, uh, the cliffhanger that we left off on all those months ago, if you'll remember, uh, we just left the cavemen and we get to a new planet and the doctor asks Susan to check the radiation meter and she does and she says, oh, it's fine. And then they walk away to go get dressed and go outside and then the radiation meter picks up to danger. That's all it says on that section of the meter. And you realize, oh, crap, this plant is really radioactive and the party doesn't know. Um, still baffling. I'm not over the fact that surely you have better procedures than this. If this is a thing that can happen, then you would know, oh, when you first get to a planet, you need to wait a little bit to check the radiation meter because this can't be the first time this has come up in your time traveling. Well, presumably they should also be checking oxygen and levels and... <laughs> No, the only life-threatening thing on any planet is radiation. That's the only just thing the that one can happen. Thing. Yeah. Uh, well, we start out going out into 
the Petrified Forest. This is in episode five of the original series called The Dead Planet. And it's just, you're surrounded by trees, but nothing is moving. And they're making a, a point of noting, there's even wind, but the trees aren't moving. And they realize everything is made of, like, like stone. It's all kind of crumbling. There's is a... The, it, sorry, go ahead. Is the camera effect there intentional, do you think? That when they first enter the forest, it has this... It's not quite a negative, but it's really, like, washed out... Is that something they did on purpose, or is this because this is very old footage and sometimes things just don't look right? So this is actually one of the things I was sort of appreciating about this serial coming back to it, is that in some cases I think the camera work is doing kind of cool stuff. Like, I'm not a cinematography guy, I don't know cinematography terms and stuff, but for instance, in these opening shots when they're first leaving the TARDIS, everything that's around almost looks like a relief sculpture for a bit. It's hard to figure out what you're looking at. And then you That's realize, oh, there's a really heavy fog effect happening. And you see them walk out of the TARDIS and then you realize, oh, there's just fog all over the place. I don't know if they had an actual fog machine on set or how they're doing it. But I think it is actually kind of cool. So I was hoping that it was intentional because I liked it. And and they do do some, um, some camera uh, trickery later on, you know, mm-hmm. with... Uh, spoilers, Ian gets shot by an anti-leg gun. <laughs> yeah. And I think it goes uh-huh. negative there for a while, and that yeah. yeah, that looks pretty cool. It looked like he was getting shot with a laser. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, I like them walking into the forest. It's, it's pretty neat. They, they're clearly trying to do a lot with a little. Um, yeah. To, to, to some varying degrees of effectiveness. I think this one this one paid off. Um, so maybe, maybe while we're still in the exploration phase of the of the serial where there hasn't we haven't been introduced to any stakes yet other than who knows what's out there on this planet like as far as we know right now there's nothing stopping them from just going back to the TARDIS and going somewhere else if they want to uh we're exploring this forest everything in it is made of stone they're not quite sure why that's happening uh Susan wants to pick up a little flower that's made of stone and Ian kind of helps her do it and then immediately just crushes it in his hand running to help Barbara when she calls out for help for some reason it's um, really funny yeah she was fine by the way there's just a metal creature there it's kind of a like this is very immediately sci-fi in I don't know if it's actually a great way there's a very goofy looking set piece which is this big metal looking I don't know boar porcupine thing whatever uh and the doctor deduces that it actually was always made of metal that's not whatever turned the trees to stone did not turn this thing into metal it's a it's an organism made of metal and it's held together by a magnetic field and when it was alive it could probably magnetically attract prey so this is the first instance of what is going to be it's going to be a running thing in this serial, and I know that we encounter it a little bit later on because since we're re-recording this, we have watched further on. The, <laughs> sure. the doctor seeing something for a half a second and speaking very confidently about something he <laughs> could not possibly know. Yeah. The <laughs> Immediately looking at a, what is essentially like a metal lizard dog sculpture just looking at that and thinking yep it has a magnetic core that's holding together its metal parts and that magnetic core can also increase its magnetism to attract its prey which are also metal (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally 
it's great. And <laughs> and on one hand, you, I mean, the initial thinking is that this kind of thing is for exposition or something, but it isn't because I don't think the dog comes back, or at least it doesn't in no. the first four episodes. Uh, the dog only shows up one more time as a completely throwaway thing, and I think they just wanted to get one more use out of that prop since clearly they don't have a lot of money for props and they did throw something at this thing. Um, so it's just making the doctor look very smart. Well, it's, it's a couple to. things. It makes him look one, very confident. I do like the idea, because the thing is they want to throw some like real goofy sci-fi stuff at you of like, premises of things that could exist in alternate planets and alternate timelines that you'd never would have thought of. And so this is their first take on that. I mean, this is literally the first alien in Doctor Who, right? I don't know if it's a great start as far as aliens in Doctor Who, but this is the first alien in Doctor Who. And part of the point is to show, oh, see, the Doctor knows, he's a xenobiologist, basically. He knows all kinds of things about aliens on all kinds of planets. The other thing is, this is the first clear communication, we're not on Earth. This is the first time the show has not been on Earth, and this this creature is when we immediately know, with no ambiguity, this can't be Earth. These things don't exist on Earth. Um, other than that, the plane is totally dead. That Everything is just completely made of stone or metal or whatever, and the stuff that's made of metal is dead. This is my next... It wasn't. This is my next yeah. point, actually, is that the doctor seconds after being very sure about this metal lizard dog says, <laughs> we know one thing for sure. The planet is totally dead. <laughs> he has seen, and I'm being generous here, an acre of this planet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and seconds after he says, this planet is totally dead, Ian says, look over here, an entire city. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they, the next thing they immediately see is a giant city on the horizon, uh, which looks very obviously like miniatures. Uh, it's kind of cool, though. I don't know. Uh, oh, I think it looks The doctor, good. yeah. The doctor really wants to go visit it, and everybody else just wants to get out of here. They say, because, you know, Barbara and Ian have been talking about, why can't the doctor just take us home already? And they would really just like to leave. So they argue about it for a moment, and then they agree, well, it's getting late anyway, so we really could ha would have to go back to the TARDIS for tonight at least, and then maybe the Doctor wants to go visit the city in the morning, and they all go back to the TARDIS. Um, on the way back, Susan sees... I didn't catch this last time, actually. The reason Susan gets separated by everybody on the way back is because she sees another flower, like the one that Ian crushed before, and she wants to crouch down and get it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then while she's crouched down, she now just starts kind of panicking in the middle of the woods. And it's not obvious why. She's kind of like looking around and woods starting to freak out. She shouts, who's there? And then, and if you watch closely, you do see a hand touches her, like on her shoulder or something like that. And she immediately freaks out and starts running back to the TARDIS crying. Um, This is a good hook. Mm-hmm. That is ruined by the answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we can discuss the answer when I, I don't want to go too far out of order, but I'll just say that like I'm, I'm on board right now. What's this hand doing? Sure. And then when I find out I'm, I'm off board <laughs> I'm way off. Board. Yeah, totally. Cause right now all we know about this planet is it's got a bunch of trees and even some animals, but they're all just dead. They all just seem to have been like wiped out in place. Uh, there's a city on the horizon, and there's something in the woods, and they don't know what. And in fact, at least at first, nobody believes Susan. 
They go back inside, and the doctor immediately thinks it's a scientific impossibility that there's anything still alive on this planet, because he walked around 100 feet and said, everything here is dead. <laughs> uh, so he sends Barbara to go and try and calm Susan down, because she thinks he thinks Susan's being crazy and insisting that she got touched in the woods by a hand or something when he knows that that's impossible. Um, everybody's really on edge. Um, I did. I did find it kind of humanizing for him. On on one hand, he's being a complete jerk because uh, Susan was touched by something in the woods, and he just says it's impossible. But on the other hand, he kind of he pulls Barbara aside and says, "I just don't get her. Can you help, please?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, that was for a guy who's like been kind of comically unlikable. It was a likable moment for him to say, "Like I'm, I'm very old." This is a young girl. I don't know what to do with this situation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's kind of nice. Um, I mean, there is a little bit of a quality of, like, you're tempted to, and this is a very loaded word, use the word hysterical in terms of, like, this is this is how the doctor seems to view Susan and say, like, ah, yeah, she's got the woman crazies. Just, here, you go talk to her. You know what that's like. So there's a little I... bit of that quality to it, but that might be too unfair. I mean, he's at, at least saying i do sort of agree with you but i also feel like if if ian were complaining that something was in the woods i do sort of feel like the doctor would also not believe him <laughs> yeah that might be right yeah so that that maybe is unfair it is just kind of a <laughs> i don't know how to handle her can you go talk to her because i think she's crazy and i can't hide that i think she's crazy and she doesn't like that i think that so can you talk to her instead um so while they're talking, and we do get a little bit of Barbara and Susan talking about how, you know, Susan's really hurt, nobody believes her. Uh, Ian is yelling at the doctor, you need to get us out of here. When are you going to get us out of here and take us home? And the doctor deflects to, you're probably just hungry. Why don't we all just go and eat something? Right? And it's a now good we deflection. get, yeah, we get this, um, this like TARDIS vending machine scene, which is really bizarre. Um... This does predate Star Trek, so I forget the name of the thing in Star Trek that you can, you can, you know, cut Earl Grey hot, and then it... it I think it's a fabricator. If fabricator, I something like that. Something like that. Uh, Matter fabricator. They go a little more old-fashioned for Doctor Who. It has a, like, vending machine object in it, and the Doctor says, oh, well, what do you guys want to eat? And Barbara says, oh, I would love bacon and eggs. So the Doctor looks through, like, the manual... And tells Susan, okay, put in J62L6. And she types that in on the vending machine. And then this, like, protein bar comes out. And he hands one to Ian and one to Barbara. And they start eating it. And they're like, wow, this is incredible. This tastes just like bacon and eggs. What's going on here? Uh, and he says, well, it's very simple, my boy. Food has component parts. And flavors are like primary colors. You combine two to get a third and so on. And that's how you make it taste exactly like bacon and eggs in a protein bar. I really like that. Are we buying that. that? I wish that I knew like a chef or something so I could just ask them how they feel. Uh -huh. Somebody who's better with flavors than me because, you know, ketchup is fine for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds yeah. right. I mean, the only thing that I, I don't buy is that there's a very significant texture component, Right. Which is not combining flavors. That's what it feels like. That's a sense of touch more than a sense of taste. But that's a pretty important component of bacon and eggs, you know? 
I suppose it is. <laughs> if I don't know if somebody was giving me like a bacon and egg, because you have I don't know if you have like a bacon and egg burrito that's uh-huh. sufficiently mashed up like you're getting it from a fast food place. <laughs> it's pretty close to bacon and eggs in a tube, like astronaut yeah. food. But so, I also don't really feel like that's the true bacon and egg experience at that point. I would be like, well, this is a breakfast burrito. It you know tastes like egg, but it doesn't really have the same texture as eating bacon and eggs. I guess what I'm getting at is you can taste the bacon and you can taste the eggs, even though the texture of those things is going to be completely off. Sure. If a magical man handed you a breakfast burrito when you asked for bacon and eggs and you took a bite and you didn't know what a breakfast burrito was, I think you would go, well, golly, this is this is bacon and eggs. I can taste the bacon. I can taste the eggs. I think it's right. Yeah. All right. So whatever. We're buying it. Uh, I don't rem- I think last time we recorded this, we were not buying it. So we've softened on the sci-fi. <laughs> I turned around <laughs> on this one. I like I like yeah. the concept. Uh, the other thing that's going on, though, people are feeling sick. It's going around. Susan was feeling out of it. The doctor was saying, oh, you know, I'm going to maybe go to bed early. Barbara has a headache and the doctor gives her some unnamed medicine. Susan's it's got like it's like an eyedropper and Susan's dropping it in some water. And the doctor says, don't take too much. And then she gives the water to to Barbara. No other word on the medicine. I'm really curious about like what drugs the doctor's got from the future. But at any rate, people are feeling sick. Also, before they go to bed. There's a scratching and tapping on the front door. And everybody freaks out. Says, what? Okay, there are aliens here. And now this is a moment where the conversation they were having before that the doctor was trying to avoid kind of comes to a head. The doctor wants to go and check out that city. And it's very important to him, for not clear reasons, to go and check out that city. And everybody else says, there's something in the woods that's going to murder us. You should just take us out of here. Because if you die, none of us can control the TARDIS. So the doctor says, okay, fine. I'm going to take you guys home. And he goes and pushes some buttons on the console. And then he crouches down and fiddles with something. And the TARDIS starts to make the noise and start up like normal. And then it makes some very terrible noises and shuts down. It's like, oh no, it's not working right. Um, I didn't actually catch the first time I watched this that he he is fiddling with something before, before it breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's downright nefarious. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. That's not uh, cool, and I bet Doctor. That, I bet that most people watching this originally also didn't catch that, right? I don't think I caught it the first time. Um, just because I think I expect a normal amount of just like fidgeting with stuff from the actors. I don't know why it didn't really register with me the first time. This second time, yes, very, very clear what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and he's selling it then, right? Unless you're actually watching and you know that he's trying to break something, then he he sells it even to the audience. Uh, But it breaks, and Susan says, oh, you know, do I need to go and check the fault locator? And the doctor says, yes, definitely. And she runs back to a back room where there's, like, a bunch of, like, seismograph-looking things. And she reads out... Yeah, it's weird... These the, clearly their idea of technology in this writer's room is seismographs. Like that's what they think like future tech is going to look like is a needle and a piece of paper that's sliding past the needle and it's tracing out something. Mm-hmm. Um, she reads out K7. The doctor says, oh, yes, of course, it's the fluid link. Well, wouldn't you know, the it, thing that I just means that the fluid with. link is out of mercury and I'm going to have to refill it. 
but I don't have any mercury, so we're going to have to go and try and find some from that city. And the doctor and Ian says, oh, I guess we have no choice then, huh? I'm surprised that it wasn't like cetesium or something, uh, an element <laughs> you can only get from cities. Like, that's how obvious <laughs> he is about this. Yeah. Uh, and he even says, uh, before they go to bed, at uh, first light then, and does kind of a sinister laugh. <laughs> it is sinister. Yeah. So, they wake up in the morning, and they go out the door. And the first thing that happens, there's this weird box by the door. And they're like, they don't trust it at first, and Ian kind of like taps on it with a stick from a distance to see if it's going to blow up or something. But they open it up, and it's just full of glass vials. That's weird. It's just sitting outside the TARDIS, and there's just a bo- like a metal box, and it's got a bunch of glass vials inside. Yeah. That's it. And they say, that's weird. And the doctor says, well, I'd like to I'd like to analyze that if I can. I guess he's got a mass spec inside or something. So they decide they're going to leave it inside the TARDIS, and the doctor's going to test it later. And in the meantime, they're going to head to the city, uh, where everybody is once again feeling extremely bad. I don't want to um, nitpick, but it really feels like what what did the aliens drop off for us is a more important thing totally. to do than investigate the city. Like, their their priorities are not straight. <laughs> they don't even really dwell on the fact that, oh, Susan was right. There are, like, aliens on this planet, and probably somebody did tap on her shoulder last night when she was in the woods. And this is this is a whole thing now, guys. Let's ignore that they're trying to contact us and just continue our vague investigation and see if we discover the same thing on our own. Yeah. Uh, so in the city, the doctor is fe- immediately, he's like, I got to sit down. I'm so tired. And maybe he's just an old man, but everybody else seems pretty tired too. So they all sit down for a minute and Barbara kind of accidentally activates a door on one of the buildings and is like, oh, wow, I can get through here. So Ian says, hmm, well, we better split up so that we can cover more ground. Always a good idea. Uh, so, Barbara, you go through that weird door. We're all going to go in different directions, and let's all meet back up right here in ten minutes. Um, it's, it's very Scooby-Doo, you know? Of course. <laughs> uh, this is actually the part where I... It, on, it was only on rewatch I really noticed this. I was most impressed with the, um, like, kind of camera work and stuff. There's these really spooky, like, kind of tinny sound effects that play when they're inside the the um, buildings in the city. Mm-hmm. And it's playing the whole time Barbara's walking down these hallways. And they have these kind of effective scenes where Barbara's just walking down a hallway. And you have those sound effects playing. And the thing that they actually need to film is a really insane thing to film. Because what they need to film is a woman walking down a hallway. And then... With nothing else happening, suddenly becoming very agitated and freaking out and running around like something has gone very wrong. And they managed to sell it, I think, mostly with camera work and with the sound effects. And, I mean, she does a fine job, too, of sort of conveying what's happening. Like, oh, actually, I'm lost, or it's moving around or something, and now I can't figure out how to get out of here. Uh, But, like, the camera's slanted at one point. Mm -hmm. And then they also have her go into a room and she's kind of like feeling around on walls like she can... And at one point she reaches out and puts her hand on the camera feeling around, which kind of implies that maybe you're seeing from the viewpoint of like a security camera that's watching her or something. Um, Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so they're doing some kind of interesting things with that. uh, To the point that by the time she is like 
running down a hallway, kind of panicked, and then, like, kind of exhausted, like, collapses back against a wall, looking around, and then freaks out when a door shuts on her. It You kind of buy it. Like, I, I think it is actually kind of impressive to manage to make this scene work. Uh, it's it, Yeah, it's it definitely, it feels right. And when that, you know, iconic plunger comes out <laughs> and attacks her, it's just this classic old acting moment uh-huh. where her, like, instead of, I think, uh, uh, in reality, a person would see something and try to get away from it or try to confront it in some way if they're cornered. But she just backs herself up against a wall and tries to get as flat as possible against the wall while, I think, screaming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, it's perfect. Yeah, it's... Yeah. So we get a brief shot of the rest of the party saying, well, Barbara didn't get back here within the 10 minutes. We better go look for her. And then the cliffhanger is, like you said, the, the camera approaching her with a wobbly plunger and her, you know, back against the wall screaming just horribly. Just... Ah, just a, a completely, you know, it, it, I think it's meant to be a blood curdling scream, although it doesn't actually go that high. Um, and yeah. that's the end of the episode, which apparently people were really into. You know, as far as cliffhangers go, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I think it might be the strongest one yet. Um, of the I think actually four episodes we show, watched, it's certainly the strongest. Like, even in the rest of this series, this show has not really gone that hard on the cliffhangers a lot of times. Like, there will frequently be some cliffhangers, and you're just like, well, that doesn't... There's not, like, anything in particular that that really conveys, like, this is what the next episode's going to start with, and it's going to be action-packed. But this one, you're immediately... What is the... What's the plunger thing? Because you haven't actually met the alien yet. You have to wait a week to meet the alien. You just know that it has a horrible plunger thing and you saw from its eyes, but you don't know what it looks like. And it looks pretty cool once we get to it. Yeah, totally. Not to spoil episode two, but I mean, the I, as as goofy as the props and stuff can sometimes be, I think the Dalek is a really, if if clunky, stylish looking alien. It, it looks classic. Totally. Uh, before we move on to episode two, I did discover... Uh, I've mentioned before that I am subscribed to BritBox on Amazon Prime in order to be able to watch classic Doctor Who. Uh, Amazon Prime has a thing called X-Ray that I think everybody has always kind of ignored because people just don't care that much. But it will give Mm -hmm. you trivia on TV episodes. So I was reading some of the trivia that it has about these episodes. Uh, Among them, I thought this is kind of interesting. The original version of this actually is gone like this this episode episode five the the lifeless planet the original version of it is gone because the original version of it uh had what they call talk back which is where a little bit of the like direction from the onset director to the cast got caught in the in the original soundtrack and so they had to what they called remount it i don't know what that means in the context of film but so like that original edit is gone hmm a little bit of that original edit made it into episode two of this of this serial as the um, as the like recast re reshowing the the cliffhanger. So when they reshow the cliffhanger at the beginning of the next episode, it's actually slightly different than it was at the end of this episode. Oh, that's an interesting tidbit. Yeah, uh, this is not the first time we're going to be dealing with episodes of Doctor Who that are just gone to history. Uh, and this one, at least, we still have pretty much the entirety of what it was like. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a weird bit. Um, apparently there were, uh, 
6.9 million viewers on this original transmission. Is that, is that a good amount for the day? This sounds like a lot. I don't know. It's 1963. How many are you know. expecting? I don't. I have no concept of how many people is a normal amount for a television today, let alone um, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, apparently, and I think that there are a lot of these kinds of things in these episodes. Uh, early in the episode, the doctor calls uh, Ian, who you will note his last name is Chesterton. He calls him Chesterfield. And they just they just went with it, which honestly is not completely out of character for the Doctor. They did that intentionally in another episode later on, uh, so that like it's not that goofy. Uh, but it was it was just a mistake during filming that they just left. Uh, he also says um, somebody left us anti radiation gloves, drugs. Yeah, well, and that and so that's in the next next episode, and at least by then. Uh, as is not really oh, a spoiler because we yeah. already know it from the cliffhanger on this one. Uh, they're all very sick with radiation poisoning. That's why everybody's acting like they're really sick. I don't even know if it's much of a reveal when they tell you that because you do at the beginning of this episode. Oh, this planet's extremely radioactive. Yeah, of course. Um, so if we move on, they they don't replay Barbara's scream. That was actually what I noticed before I even saw the the trivia bit from Amazon. They don't replay the the scream that she did at the end of the last episode when they do the the recap of the cliffhanger. Uh, mm-hmm. They just go go right past that because uh, it just wasn't part of that edit. You got a good eye. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Uh, so Barbara. We don't know what happened to Barbara. We just get to hang out with Ian, the doctor, and Susan. And they're going around inside looking for Barbara. And they go through a few doors, and then the doctor hears a clicking noise. And he says, well, what's that clicking noise? And so they try and follow the clicking noise. And it leads them into a room of what they are calling measuring equipment, which, once again, seismographs. The writers, that's just what they think advanced technology looks like, is a bunch of weird seismographs. Um, And... We are going to try a production first here. Uh, bear with us. Um, there's a, a quote that I think is is really bizarre that happens right here. But it's an interaction between the Doctor and Ian. Um, and I, I have it here. Hmm. I can imagine what sort of people these are. They're intelligent anyway, very intelligent. Yes, but how do they use that intelligence? What form does it take? Oh, as if that matters. What these instruments tell us is that we're in the midst of a, a very, very advanced, civilized society. Very weird interaction. It completely matters. I <laughs> yeah. It's such a... Biz- it, it's, it's almost as if the doctor only has that opinion because Ian was asking <laughs> about it. It's, it's like if he had come to some kind of question on his own, of course he would think... What are these people like? But because somebody else is wondering, it's oh, we, I don't care. Yeah, I do like that read of it actually. That it's he's not saying it doesn't matter because he doesn't care. Because if he says he doesn't care, it almost you strike it. It strikes you as the doctor being just completely amoral. He just doesn't believe in any kind of morality. And so you ask, well, what is it? Are they good or bad? Are they doing bad things with their intelligence? And he says that doesn't matter. All I value is science. But I think I actually do like it more, and it seems truer to the character to say that the Doctor just wants to be dismissive of Ian, because that is that is clearly very important to him. He loves being dismissive of Ian. 
Absolutely, uh, and I also love course. it when he's dismissive of Ian. So more power <laughs> to him. Especially with uh, some of my opinions on Ian in the next few episodes, I uh, love it when anyone's yeah. dismissive of Ian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's Susan too good figures too out what the clicking noise was. And this is, I think, one of the more uh, embarrassing things that happened in these episodes uh, from the from a perspective of judging the writers. Susan says, oh, I know what it is. It's right over here, and it's a Geiger counter. So first of all, their Geiger counters just click like our Geiger counters click. Second of all, they walk over to it, and it's got a meter on it. And there's a needle on the meter, and the meter has just in English lettering the word danger. And the needle is all the way to the danger. And so Ian sees it and says, oh no, that means that it's horribly radioactive here. And the doctor sees it and says, yeah, we've all got radiation sickness. That's why not, we're not feeling well. I don't, there's not a ton of imagination in what would it look like if there was an alien society that had their own kinds of technology and measuring equipment and all that. And it still is, just has a meter, pretty much the same meter the doctor had in the TARDIS, honestly. And it just says in English lettering, danger. <laughs> I know it's on one hand we have like spherical monitors and these uh you know plunger patch panels for <laughs> for controls and and all this really creative stuff and then and then you have just something this is like eh, dangerous. Yeah. Now I know it's a challenge from like a prop standpoint. It's a challenge to come up with a prop that you're going to be able to put on camera and the prop by itself will communicate effectively to the audience what is happening, right? So, for instance, mm -hmm. the one that was back in the TARDIS also looked pretty old-fashioned, but at least that by itself, as the cliffhanger, could function without a single character on screen being able to explain what was happening, right? And you as the audience immediately understand, oh, that's the radiation meter. It's ticked all the way up to the danger. They even had a light come on and flash once it got there. So you know this is a problem. And that, you know, good on them. That was a that was a difficult challenge to solve with a prop. You couldn't possibly have the actors help you out with some dialogue because none of them were supposed to know about it. And it worked. They did the exact same thing here, and now they don't need to do it. There's no reason for it. That's true. There's a lot of this episode that feels like filler. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was our problem with it the first time around. Uh, so there's an argument that happens between the Doctor and Ian, and it's the same argument that always happens. The Doctor wants to go back to the TARDIS and just move on. Ian says, no, we can't leave without Barbara. The Doctor is so quick to abandon anybody for <laughs> any reason. Yeah, totally. The, his answer to everything is always, let's let everyone die and go back to the TARDIS and, TARDIS and save ourselves. Now, Ian points out, well, hold on. I thought that we needed Mercury to get the TARDIS working anyway. So we can't go back to the TARDIS because you need Mercury to fill the fluid link. And the doctor says, hmm. Well, I guess you have me there. Okay, I have some explaining to do. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the fluid link. I just took this part out of the TARDIS as, and showed it to you. But, you know, the, the part's fine. I could just go put it back in and then we could be on our way. I just took it out because I wanted you guys to not argue with me about going and seeing the city. What I love about this is that the doctor is such a prideful person that you wouldn't think that he would care some like you wouldn't think that he would want to admit that he lied or something like that, right? Uh-huh. But he feels so strongly that they should just abandon Barbara and leave that he's actually willing to admit that he lied and <laughs> took everybody 
into danger and, and make himself look bad just because like yeah we should leave barbara though <laughs> yeah uh, it doesn't work. He gives up his secret to try and convince them to leave, and it doesn't work, because instead, Ian immediately snatches the uh, fluid link from him and says, Ha, huh, well, you can't leave without this, so now I'm insisting we don't leave without Barbara. And they go through a single door, literally one door, and immediately are captured by a bunch of Daleks. There's like, what, six of them in that room? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Obviously, they already had him on cameras or something before that, and then they they had just come up to go and check on them. And right. we had just enough time to have this argument before we get captured. Um, they are taken prisoner. Um, Ian does like a really big show of acting very suspicious when they are first captured, and then, to no one's surprise, tries to make a run for it and immediately gets shot. He telegraphs it for like ten seconds before he does it. It is so not slick. Hit the transition from him being suspicious to running is the like the funniest, <laughs> most awkward making a break for it I think I've seen in cinema. It was it was really nice. Yeah, I I think I probably should try and figure out how to make a gif of it just because I wonder like <laughs> I feel like it would be a pretty good gif for a lot of situations. Um. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, he is shot by a Dalek. I think that the, the plunger arm is a gun. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, but don't worry, listeners. He's okay. They just shot him with the Charlie horse gun. His <laughs> legs don't work now. And they explained to him, your legs are paralyzed. You will recover shortly unless you make us shoot you again. And then it's going to be permanent. I don't... Okay. I really appreciate that... Like, they could have just gone for a, a total body paralysis, and that would have made so much more sense. But instead, like, there's a reason we're calling it the Charlie horse gun is because it's so silly that they blast him with this thing and just his legs stop working. It's like, oh, they're numb right now. <laughs> it's so and bizarre then, they have the tech to do this to a human body on Scaro, however many million light years away from Earth. Like, it's so why? specific. Yeah. Uh, but they are taken prisoner. Ian's legs don't work. They are dragged into a prison cell with Barbara. And they tell Barbara, hey, we actually don't have uh, a lot longer to live even because we all got radiation sickness. We were thinking we need to get back to the TARDIS and teleport out of here because otherwise we're going we're gonna to die. We have to go get treatment somewhere. Uh, so things are looking pretty bleak. And now we get our first Dalek scene. And I really like these Dalek scenes. Um, the Daleks are, I mean, we'll get a little further into the series before we talk too much about what Dalek society is like, because I'm really interested in it. I think that's probably going to be a conversation for the, the next episode of the podcast when we talk about the, uh, the second half of this serial, uh, because they are kind of interesting. They do walk around and mostly look at monitors and then report things to each other in this monotone voice. In this case, they seem to have some program going to reduce the um, the radiation. And I've got another clip for us here. 200 days ago, the radiation count was 93. It is now 58. An impressive reduction. It is still enough to destroy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way the Daleks are, are talking to each other. They're just in like a room in a bunker deep underground. 
and they go around saying things to each other like, the radiation count is 93. Uh, and that's pretty good. I just like it yeah. a lot. No notes. <laughs> they're, I couldn't improve it. They're, they're really nice. They're, they're good villains. Um, <laughs> they're, they have a, they have a striking, uh, silhouette even, right? They're, they're, it's a good design. Yeah. Their, their voice is very memorable. Um, we haven't really fleshed out who they are and what they do very much, but you can tell they're like, they're space jerks. Sure. Well, I mean, even here's a question for you, Drake. If you met somebody who, by you know, against all odds, had never seen a Dalek, had no idea what they are, and they said, "What does a Dalek look like?" How do you even explain what a Dalek looks like? I would say, picture like a garbage can Mm -hmm. with. uh, like dome nodes all over it and uh, and a circular lens for a face and a plunger for a hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, I think it's almost impossible that if you ask anybody this question, they would not involve the words like garbage can or trash can or something to talk about and, Daleks and because that's just what they are. <laughs> I don't even know why specifically that because they have more of a triangular shape than that. Mm-hmm. I guess they're they're more like an upturned one of those um, kind of walk around trash cans that you see uh, like janitors, sanitation workers using to mm-hmm. put up trash in from actual trash cans. <laughs> yeah, they look but like they have one the of big those. dome head, like you'll see trash cans have sometimes. Uh, and then they've got the uh, and this is probably their most defining feature. The it's like a periscope. It's like a big scope that sticks out the front of them. Um, and that seems to be their eye or something like that, right? I would say so. Uh, oh, yeah, it, then, you know, it's definitely the eye. Yeah, and then they've got down below just a single plunger hand, which I think is also a gun. That was where they shot the, the Charlie horse beam from. Some uh, and then their whole tool. lower body is just covered with half, uh, with uh, semispheres. That's the word I was looking rather. for. So, Nobody's calling yeah. them semispheres. <laughs> Uh, and that's, that's the, the, the look. It's all very chrome. It's all metal. Um, but not a lot of jagged edges actually, which is kind of interesting, right? Yeah. What color would you picture them as since this was in black and white? And I I mean, ultimately we know that they're blue, right? They're blue. I might. Are they blue? Is that right? Am I doing a thing where I I just insert the wrong? in my head. I imagine I'm, the main body of them as being like a sort of shiny gray, like a like a silver, you know. Uh, they're okay. So they come in. I I did know that they come in a bunch of different colors. Uh-huh. Um, of course, there is a, there is a dyes. there is a blue one. I think I was kind of inserting some R two D two into that. They, <laughs> when you just look up Dalek on uh, on Google, the first thing that comes up is uh, do you hear my cat yargling in the background? Yeah. Uh, thank you, <laughs> buzzers. Okay. Won't cut that from the podcast because people find animals endearing. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> um, uh, first yeah, thing that I comes mean, up is like a copper-colored yeah, Dalek. The, the, the hemispheres are, are kind of kind of copper or goldish, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, R2-D2 is, a, is an important like frame of reference because I think that this is an era of sci-fi in which 
it is totally acceptable if you want to have, like, a robot kind of creature to just make a garbage can and, like, stick some stuff on it, you know? Everybody likes R2-D2's design. I Yeah, In- including me. I have absolutely no complaints. Me too. Like, uh, the whole BB-8 thing where it's, like, a sphere and it has the thing floating on the top of it, that's neat, whatever, but I don't even care that much. I Like, you can just give me a bunch of R2s for the rest of my life and I'll be fine with it. It It's kind of like... You'll you'll sometimes hear uh, graphic designers say that Pikachu is like the perfect design mm-hmm. for something, and I don't know I enough about. I, everybody loves Pikachu. I I can say that I think P- Pikachu is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about graphic design to tell you why, right? Uh-huh. Um, but sometimes I'm then, just waiting at like a crosswalk, and I just say to a stranger next to me, "You know, Pikachu is just the perfect design." Pikachu is just the perfect design. Pichu. Is uh, cuter but worse, and that's <laughs> that's the uh, that's the R two D two BB eight dynamic. And now we're not even talking about Doctor Who. I'm just talking about Pokemon <laughs> and Star Wars. We're talking about what really matters. We're talking <laughs> about me when strangers at crosswalks, and then they just walk, and I try and explain. No, the light's not on yet, but they're already gone <laughs> from this but, mortal yeah. plane. Yeah, the Daleks. It's a it's a good look. It's a very old fashioned look. You probably couldn't do it now or like you couldn't do something like that now because that's not how sci-fi is but at least in 1963 and for another couple decades afterward then that's a perfectly acceptable approach to to robot design yeah that's the thing is is um the daleks look great now but it's only because they have the retro factor yeah i'm bringing back in the star wars you i don't think you could do r2d2 now it would just have to look different it would have to yeah, for sure. be worse yeah, totally. like a bb8 i don't like BB-8. it's same as how all the sound effects in star wars are these very old-fashioned like laser sound effects and stuff that are now iconic and you can't touch them but you wouldn't use them now those were like what the tech was in when they were first making the the, the old it movies. would be yeah certain certain things kind of age like wine and you you can get away with them for a yeah. lot long it, it would just be unspeakably goofy to to have any of those robot yeah, yells yeah, that occur totally. in Star Wars if it was, um, it was a new franchise. So, the next thing the Daleks are going to do is, first of all, they're going to talk a little bit about how they think that their prisoners that they just took are Thals. We start hearing this word Thal, and we don't know what it, that means yet. And right. they're saying they don't understand why they're dying of radiation sickness. Um, because they thought that the Thals had radiation drugs. So they actually interrogate the doctor. They drag the doctor into an interrogation room. They tell him, stand in the light. And they say, you know, we know that you're a Thal. And why are you you dying of radiation when you guys have radiation drugs? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. But we didn't know that it was radioactive uh, until it was too late. Um, Then the doctor, as he's in the interrogation room, realizes... Oh, that's what those glass vials were. Those must be anti-radiation the radiation gloves. gloves. Yeah, uh, he goes <laughs> back and tells the party this when he gets back in the in the um, prison cell, and he does say radiation gloves, drugs, and I think it might be a mistake on set. Although it also totally fits in the situation because everybody is looking so haggard by now. The doctor can barely, he's just like crouching, he can barely stay upright to even explain this before just immediately lying down against a wall and passing out. I remember reading somewhere that those line flubs were very common from that actor. What, it, what was his name? <laughs> uh, 
William Hartnell? William Hartnell. That William Hartnell will just do that for everything all the time. So <laughs> undoubtedly, that was not planned. Although I do think it works in the scene, and I don't have totally. a problem with it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's, it's just him. I think Barbara scene. kind of flubbed a line in the same scene, and maybe Ian did too. And I sort of thought, I don't think this is directed, but I think they probably did see it and say, yeah, this is fine. We don't need to reshoot this or anything. This actually works just fine. Sometimes mistakes um, can improve things. Yeah, no, and that's cool. Uh, and the doctor pitches the idea of sending one party member to go get the drugs. Just one of their group to go get the drugs. And the Daleks are cool with it. They say, okay, just one of you is going to go, and the that person knows that all the rest of your lives are in that person's hands. And they're going to get the drugs, and they're going to bring them back. And the dogs give us a little bit of exposition. Um... Did you catch how long ago the war between the Daleks and the Thals was? No. The quote is over 500 years ago. I don't know how much over. You'd have to guess quite a bit over because they're also talking about all of the mutations that have happened in the meantime. 500 years is not a lot on an evolutionary scale. It's no time at all. I mean, they seem to have forgotten what each other could even possibly look like. Yeah, totally. It's really weird because 500 years is both such a long time to have like this present a memory of a war and still like consider yourselves like cultural enemies with the other group. If you haven't seen them in 500 years. Right. It's not as if this is an ongoing conflict. This is this is a one and done over 500 years ago and then zero contact. Like, I'm trying to think what the analog would be. It would be like if, growing up, you and I had been told stories about the conquistadors, like the Spanish conquistadors, and how evil they were, and how we're gonna, like, they're gonna come back someday, and we're gonna have to destroy them. And that had been just passed on since the 1500s, the last time we had actually encountered them. We were like, they're, they're around, and someday, they're gonna show up, and we need to murder them. You know? I wonder how possible this is. <laughs> because uh, I mean it's easy to think that it's goofy but I don't know sure People, it, you can you can just propaganda your way into making somebody an enemy yeah so. I mean and it sticks a little bit better when everybody is constantly aware of the fact that the whole world has been destroyed by radiation and like the Daleks can't even go outside because there's too much radiation on the surface or at least that's what they think right now whatever uh, we'll deal with that later but uh, they can't even go outside because there's so much radiation. And that's all the Thal's fault, apparently. They had a war where there was a neutron bomb. And the neutron bomb made the whole planet radioactive. That's why the forest is dead. That's why all the critters are just, like, dead in this in place. Uh, and and uh, everything was killed by this neutron bomb. And the Daleks survived because they're deep underground. They know that some Thals have survived, but they assume that the Thals must be horribly mutated. We'll get to that. Uh-huh. I'm not going to comment on that, but we'll get to that. It's one of the uglier parts of the serial. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, they also, the, the Daleks already know the Thals have radiation drugs, right? Like, this is, this is a major plot point, these radiation drugs that the Thals have, the Daleks don't have. The Daleks, it's mentioned in the scene, they only know about the radiation drugs because they just assume it from the fact that Thals are still alive at all. This is one of the big questions that I have, and it borders on plot hole, mm-hmm. is the the Thals, and, and 
we haven't really seen them yet. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think that it's relevant to discuss now. The Thals are a farmer society, right? Uh-huh. They're uh, just completely agricultural. Uh-huh. Um, they don't seem to have a lot of scientific advancements. <laughs> I don't understand how they have the anti-radiation medicine. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the organisms that are scientifically advanced enough to have built themselves uh, electric robot bodies that can shoot Charlie horse lasers uh-huh. and have made themselves you know, an entire society underground in this giant city, <laughs> how they can't make a, a radiation Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you also, the Thals must have had it the entire time since over 500 years ago, whenever that is. Uh, because otherwise they would be dead by now, right? It is weird how the Daleks don't have any intelligence. Like, I think this is a real missed opportunity on the part of the, the writers. It could be interesting for to explore what the Daleks actually know about the surviving Thals. They know they exist, so they've seen them or something, right? They, they are aware that there are still some Thals out there. Knowing what kind of intelligence they have received from them and how that happened could be really interesting. Instead, they just assume it's radiation drugs, and they're absolutely right. It's not that they have a shelter somewhere or anything. They just assume it's radiation drugs, and that's a really bonkers assumption, but apparently it's 100% on point. Um, like every assumption so far, except for... Yeah, no, it, it actually is the same kind of logic the, the doctor does, right? Of looking yeah. at a thing and coming up with a bonkers sci-fi premise and saying, this is the only possibility, and then it's exactly it. This is uh, an internally magnetic lizard dog. Yeah. Obviously, we're now going to get a really goofy back and forth about which of the party members is going to go and get the radiation drugs. Um, The doctor is passed out against the wall. He he could barely even get out the bit about radiation gloves before he passed out against the wall. Ian still can't walk. Barbara, it just kind of gets shot down pretty flimsily that Barbara would go but Barbara's not going to go Barbara for a moment starts to try and get up and says oh the whole room's spinning I can't get up Susan is actually doing pretty okay which they don't totally explain like they don't give us a very good reason that Susan's feeling okay she has young bones yeah she's young uh her cells are dividing faster because she's young and she's growing so probably should get hit harder by the radiation but whatever the writers aren't worrying about it like that Susan's still kind of okay and so Susan's going to have to be the one to go. And nobody is prepared to accept this. Everybody is extremely upset at the idea of sending Susan to go get the drugs. Um, Ian keeps insisting it has to be him, even though multiple times he tries to stand up and walk across the room and immediately falls on the floor. Uh, he's still insisting, no, it's going to have to be me. Uh, so they do a couple things to really force it. And the things that they do to force it are pretty weak. One... They say, well, Susan has to go because Susan knows how to open the door because there's a key, but the key has to go in one of 21 holes inside the the lock. And if you get it in the wrong one, the lock melts and you can't get into the TARDIS. It's like a defense mechanism of the TARDIS. That is a terrible defense mechanism. It's a really bad defense mechanism for a time traveler who doesn't want to get stuck in another time in another dimension. If you just miss it once. 
completely unnecessary plot-wise since she's uh-huh. the only person who can even walk right now. Totally. It's just and like, redundant it, information. It makes me think there must be different cultural assumptions happening on the part of the writers and the basis, like compared to me now. They must have had a very different idea of like the capability of children, right? That's all I can come up with is that like it must have seemed much more horrible back then. The idea of sending a, a 14-year-old girl or whatever she is out into the woods by herself to just come right back. Um, they really had to sell it. To finally force the issue, a Dalek comes into the room and says, I don't care who's going, but you gotta go now. Right, so they send her. Uh-huh. Uh, we get another Dalek scene now. Um, it's not that interesting of one, other than it does have Dalek celebrating, which is a fun sort of cultural experience. Uh, they say they're going to follow Susan on the ranger scopes. So we know that they're kind of, you know, they have some kind they of can watch cameras or something. And they specifically say to each other, when she comes back, are we going to give them their drugs and let them survive? And they say, no, nah, let's just take the drugs and let them die. And then they all kind of come together and start chanting, like talking over each other. Yes, at last we have a chance. Uh, and that's kind of fun. It's, it's finally a it's, good day for the Daleks. Yeah, good villain stuff. Uh, Susan goes running through the woods, terrified. There's lightning and thunder. Uh, there's some really goofy running scenes, but also, and I don't know if you caught this. Did you catch the, um, the cloak? I didn't. When she's running through the woods, she has a few scenes where, uh, sort of like before, where she's kind of in the middle of some trees and she's looking around, doesn't know what's going on. And then she bumps into what kind of looks like a rock, except like she, she's walks by it. And as she leaves, the camera hovers for a moment, and the rock moves away. And the rock's covered in a bunch of little hexagons, so it doesn't really seem like it can be a rock. It's like a it's a cloak or something. Uh, we're going to see that same cloak on Aladdin in just a minute. So I think that was Aladdin. Right. Okay, that's that's a nice bit of uh, you know, foreshadowing might be a strong word for it, but... Yeah. It's a good thing. No, you, you do get to... You know, especially since we're, I think we don't actually meet Aladdin until the next episode. That if you were watching this at the time, you would see the cloak and be like, ah, the cloak moved. There was a thing. I mean, you wouldn't know it was a cloak, but you know, there was a thing and it moved. Oh, no. And then when you saw the cloak on Aladdin, you would know that, oh, that was the, that was the guy from before. That's kind of neat. It is kind of neat. You would definitely have to, I mean, maybe I'm an inattentive viewer and I, I probably am. Um, I didn't really catch it. Mm-hmm. To remember that a week later, especially <laughs> for a, a show that, fan. right, especially for a show that it really wasn't ever intended to be rewatched, mm-hmm. because this was a serial. I mean, you know, th- these writers were writing this for, to be aired the one time, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. Nice that they bothered to put in that detail, and and I hope I hope somebody got it right. Yeah, it's easier yeah, now because we know what Aladdin looks like. But uh, we do get a whole scene that I think is just a complete waste of time. Um, it's in the prison cell. The doctor is just passed out, and you have a little bit of conversation between Ian and Barbara, where they're talking about how oh, the doctor doesn't seem to be doing very well at all. He's probably right on death's door, and Barbara also needs to lie down. Ian has to kind of make her. Ian seems to be walking now. I don't. Uh, maybe maybe he's had enough time to get better. Uh, but he's also not feeling well. So he kind of almost collapses against the door and whispers really dramatically into the door, Hurry, Susan! Hurry, Susan! (laughs) And I think it's supposed to sort of set stakes, I guess, but the stakes are already perfectly clear. Like, the scene doesn't do anything. 
So this is the problem with the episode. I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, we've been talking about it for about a half an hour now. Clearly some stuff happened. Uh-huh. But it's it has so many redundant points, like Susan has to go to the ship for multiple reasons. And then we mm-hmm. like we already know that the stakes are high, and then they reiterate that the stakes are high. The stumbling scene through the forest, and then her getting the drugs, and then coming back out, and then the cliff... I mean, we're at the end of the episode now. The, the cliffhanger is just her walking out into the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all takes just like weirdly long time. Yeah. And despite the fact that we covered, I think, a good amount of ground now that I'm discussing beat for beat what happened in it, I ended the episode feeling like not a lot actually happened. Yeah, I think that's still true. Um, I mean, it's the episode that introduces the Daleks, so there, there's a lot of mileage there that is less meaningful to us, especially on the rewatch. But even the first time we watched it, we already knew what a Dalek was before we started watching classic Doctor Who. Um, and that would have been more meaningful for viewers at the time. Uh, and, but still, yeah, absolutely. This this episode does not have that much happening, and that's a that's definitely a big drawback. Um, the stakes are crazy high, and it does feel for a lot of the episode like they're just pummeling you with stakes constantly. Like, everybody's prisoner, and they're all dying of radiation sickness, and they're ca- the aliens that capture them are really, really evil. And if they do get back out into the woods, there's horrible mutants that we haven't met yet. And now they're going to have to send the kid alone, and the kid is just horrified, just flopping through the woods out of fear. As it really is floppy. It's a really goofy run. It's the the silliest run I have ever seen in my life. So it it's a weird kind of thing that's happening there. Uh, but she does get back to the TARDIS, and our cliffhanger is just her turning around and being like, "Ah, oh, crap! I got to go in the woods again." And I think they do like a, some thunder or something. It's there not was, a good yeah, cliffhanger. I think it's it's maybe the weakest cliffhanger so far. Not even really a cliffhanger. I mean, like you said. Some of these aren't even cliffhangers. It's more just this is this is the transition scene. It ends here. See you next yeah. week. No, and and that's the thing is like they even have like if you were gonna do the dramatic hurry Susan hurry Susan that that's could be your cliffhanger. cliffhanger. That's yeah. a good cliffhanger. That's dramatic. Like, ah, right, guys, remember the stakes, and then you move on. Um, or you know she bumps into a hexagon cloak and she runs off, but the camera lingers on the person she just bumped into. That's mm-hmm. a good cliffhanger. Sure. Um, uh, even Amazon did not have very many notes on this for the trivia section. Um, it was watched by only 6.4 million people. Um, so one of the, the narratives with this serial is that they started out with not nearly as many viewers as they ended the serial with. So this serial really put them on the map. Because um, I think by the end of it, they have like 13 million or something like that, right? So, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, but the... This episode did did not start that trend because it has less than the first one. Um, and the next two episodes are a lot stronger. I can I can see people getting on board because it, it even ups the complexity. You know, mm-hmm. we'll get to it. But yeah, this is uh, not the one of the only notes it has. Apparently, there is uh, a scene just before the doctor uh, and Susan and Ian are escorted into the cell uh, when when it's just Barbara in there. You can hear off screen a voice faintly saying stop. Because it was just like one of the onset calls that didn't oh. that in soundtrack. Yeah, that's all they got. There's not really much on this one. So. I, we're, we're still figuring it out, listeners. We're thinking this is maybe going to be a three-parter. We did it as a two-parter before, but we only did it by skipping an episode. So this we might cheated. be the way to handle it. 
Um, so, see you next week. Do we have a sign-off? Oh, geez, I don't know. This is it, I guess. Uh-huh. All right, bye, everybody. The TARDIS Tapes is an amateur production by Christian and Drake, released every other Thursday. Give or take. Any characters' similarities to real or imagined persons are purely coincidental and unquestionably fair use. Special thanks to Stephen Kelly, an absolutely smashing guy, for help with the theme music. Follow us on Twitter at TARDIS Tapes, or email us at TARDISTapes at gmail.com. But be nice, please.